This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Jody Vance in for Simi this week. Uh, you can check this out on my Twitter, at Jody Vance, Jody with a Y. The hot question of the day is pretty simple. Perhaps you've been listening over the last week and you've heard uh, some of those who are protesting on Vancouver City streets or on the front lawn of the BC legislature, perhaps blocking doors at the ledge, maybe sort of standing on the Pitt River Rail Bridge, trying to shut down the West Coast Express, much to the chagrin of those who need to get from Waterfront Station to Mission. Um, Protesters or land defenders? The debate is on about the correct term to use for Wet'suwet'en supporters. Now, Gordon McDonald brought up a really good point in our What's Happening Right Now segment, because he said this should be up to Wet'suwet'en to sort out and not we should not be debating this, but it's very hot on Twitter. Some very firm in saying that the appropriate term here is protester. You're a protester. Whereas the protesters are saying we are land defenders, which makes it somehow different than a protester. Uh, the debate was in our newsroom earlier this morning, so we thought it was a relevant hot question of the day because your third option on our vote, on our poll, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you call the people who are standing blocking Broadway and Camby or standing in the way of moving goods at the Port of Vancouver. What it is is very disruptive, trying to get a point across and a right when done legally. And we'll be discussing what constitutes a legal protest or an illegal one as well. You can vote on Twitter at CKNW. You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. You can also text me there. You know, many of us suffer from significant stress when traveling anywhere on a holiday. Borders get backed up, major routes get an extra push of rush hour-like traffic, and often when there are extra fender benders out there as well, or worse for that matter, ferry terminals, they're next level. They get jammed. You can count on that. Added to this weekend is the anxiety associated with the rolling protests hitting rail lines, city streets, and main arteries like bridges, as well as ferry terminals. We've seen it happen. Well, that anxiety inducer gets the protesters a lot of attention when they strike while the iron is hot, as it were. But this family day-long weekend sees BC ferries with a preemptive court injunction to give travelers a big dose of relief. To explain the injunction, we welcome BC Ferries spokesperson Deborah Marshall to the show. Hi, Deborah. Hi, good morning, Jody. So many people are so relieved that BC Ferries was able to uh, secure this preemptive injunction. Can you explain it to us a little bit of how that process went? Yeah, well, you know, about 10 days ago, we did see a protest uh, at our Sports Bay terminal. Uh, it did block the access to the terminal uh, for several hours, and we did have to cancel a sailing. So um, we did become aware of another planned protest that was uh, scheduled to happen on Saturday morning. Uh, so in the interest of our customers who were planning to travel with us this weekend, uh, on Friday, we did seek an injunction to prohibit protesters from blocking access to the terminals. Uh, it was a last resort, but it, you know, it's a long weekend and uh, we did it in the interest of public safety. No question about that. People would look at that and say, well, that makes a lot of sense. We got to you know, get people where they need to go. And uh, knowing about the Saturday 
possibility or the planned protest that you caught wind of for Saturday, was that what moved the meter at the courthouse for BC Ferries to secure this? Or was it the prior example of how stressed the general populace was by having that protest at Swartz Bay? Uh, well, well, it's actually twofold. You know, we did see the protests at Sports Bay uh, that did block traffic. We also saw another protest uh, northern Vancouver Island at our Alert Bay terminal. That protest did not block traffic, but uh, then we saw on social media that there were plans to blockade uh, Sports Bay on Saturday. So that's why we took the move. Um, you know, we, we certainly respect the rights of individuals to peacefully protest uh, and express their views, uh, but our concern was blocking the terminals. And I think that is somewhere that both sides of this, if there are polarizing sides, just average Jim and Joe and Joan public wanting to be able to count on the fact that they can pick up their child at daycare if they're going from one part of town to the other, um, being they might even support the protesters and the activism behind it, but they need to get where they're going. So the difference between a block and a protest, I think, can sort of find some center here. So uh, from what we're garnering in terms of people uh, contacting us here at the station, the real frustration happens when, i.e. the ferries don't run or the West Coast Express is completely shut down. Uh, When when there's sort of a rolling protest through a part of the city, it's not, uh, people aren't as exasperated, I guess that's what I'm trying to say, Deborah. So having this in place for BC ferries does not negate um, civil... Um, uh, protest voices, the freedom of speech to be near a ferry terminal to to have banners and chant and, and get a message across. It's just actual blocking of the ferries that that is the problem here, correct? Well, that's exactly right. And we are creating uh, demonstration zones that would allow protesters to be highly visible uh, and express their views at the terminals, but just not to block people from having access. So, you know, again, we we totally get it. Uh, Free speech, people can express their views. They want uh, their opinions known. But if they can do it off to the side, uh, they'd be highly visible, but not impede traffic, uh, our customers and our employees from accessing the terminals. What an excellent idea that is. A demonstration zone that actually has the audience that demonstrators or protesters or activists, whatever the, the label will be, they would have their audience that they're looking for. Exactly. People can certainly get their message across. You know, obviously, family day long weekend, we've got thousands of customers traveling with us. So, you know, people can certainly get their point across, but we're asking if they can do it peacefully uh, just to decide so we're not impeding traffic. So can you give us an idea of where a demonstration zone might be, let's say, at the Tawasin Terminal? Because that's tight for Uh, space, right? It is tight for space. Uh, you know, there is the causeway. Uh, I, I actually don't have the list in front of me uh, where all the demonstration zones would be. Fair enough. But I do know that, you know, we, we certainly want to be able to um, uh, give people a, a place that they can uh, make their views known, uh, but just do it safely on the side. Maybe that's a tomorrow story. I definitely want that information if you wouldn't mind sending it to us, because that, that fascinates me to, to perhaps find a way, because that's been an, an argument for those in and around the Lower Mainland in, in Vancouver proper for that matter because we have been seeing those rolling protests from major artery to major artery and the and the argument being why not at the art gallery where protests have often happened why not at Jackpool Plaza where protests have often happened it is the it is the immediate um, 
uh, what, what is it, spotlight, I guess, that protesters get when they shut down the intersection of Broadway and Canby. So it's great that BC Ferries has been able to get this preemptive uh, injunction. Is it ongoing or is it just for this weekend? Uh, it is ongoing uh, for the current situation that is happening uh, with the pipeline protests. Again, you know, we certainly respect the rights of individuals to make their uh, concerns known, their voices known, uh, but we're just asking if they can just do it uh, peacefully uh, on, on the side so that they're not impeding the traffic. Keeping everybody safe, both protesters and employees, as well as those traveling on BC ferries. Message delivered. Thank you very much for this, Deborah. Thank you. That's Deborah Marshall, BC Ferries spokesperson, speaking to the preemptive injunction that was granted to BC Ferries to remove protesters uh, who would block the ability for uh, ferry riders to utilize that service on this long weekend. And I'm joined by Claire Allen. Of course, you know her, you love her, CKNW contributor. And we were talking in our morning meeting today about the the sparks that fly surrounding the conversation of these protests, of what Soatin, of the Coastal GasLink pipeline. There's so many moving parts and pieces to this that it's, and, and we all have to be careful in how we're talking about it, for fear of being labeled one extreme or the other. Mm-hmm. Even there, I'm being careful, right? I know. Yeah, you didn't want to say that R word. No. <laughs> yeah, no. And I mean, it's definitely really scary. I mean, I've been covering the protests because I've been on the scene of the one at Canby and Broadway, and I was on the scene of the Granville Bridge shutdown. And I tweeted out something very simple about how the protests at Canby and Broadway obviously were diverting the B-line buses, right? That's the major bus route from the um, east side of Vancouver to UBC. And I made a comment that that was diverting the buses, and I saw a couple people that were visually impaired that were really struggling to obviously understand what was going on. Like That they couldn't see the protests, obviously. They didn't know where their bus was, and they were asking people for help. And I said, you know, this is a a side effect of this protest and having the the buses be shut down and the intersection be shut down. Jody, let me tell you. I caught a lot of abuse on Twitter for that comment. I could not believe what I witnessed yes. happening to you on Twitter. Knowing you as I do, mm-hmm. some of the outlandish remarks made about your character yes, it was crazy. shocked me. But what I really love about you, Claire Allen, is that you left the tweet up. Well, I don't know. That's what people told me to do. I haven't really experienced this sort of vitriol on Twitter, but I will say that I'm not alone. I have seen that other journalists have had to delete tweets because mm-hmm. it's gotten too crazy. The people are using horrible language. Sandy Garasino last week had yes. to do the same thing after being on the Linda Steele show with me. Mm-hmm. She was doing the political panel. She just made a clear statement, just a point of view, and it was like it the echo effect was remarkable. Right. And it was taken out of context and it was reposted over here and over there. And I mean, it's just, this is such a hot, and I mean, temperature hot, not, hey, hot topic. This is fun. Let's talk about it. I mean, like hot, like Like hot to the touch. Everybody's going to get burnt. Going to get burnt indeed. Uh, Well, over the course of the past week, I mean, these all really got rolling. It was a week ago where that viral clip from Check Six News where the the Victoria man who was like, I might even agree with you guys, but you're blocking both bridges and I right. need to get where I'm going. Yes. How frustrated, but yet how calm he remained. He did remain calm and he was, you know, you could tell he was frustrated, but he wasn't out there screaming. And I've seen people screaming at the protesters. I have seen people, you know, profanity, yelling, like, get a job, just assuming that they maybe don't have jobs. 
it gets so heated that it, I feel like it totally breaks down any attempt to have a dialogue about what's happening. And that is so dangerous, I think, because you remain compl- just in silos. The, the polarization or the partisan nature of mm-hmm. my side, your side, my way or the highway, or yeah. my way or I'm going to block the highway, right. whatever it comes down to. But it's interesting to watch and listen to um, some of our elected officials Mm -hmm. speak to this. I had the opportunity to speak with Kennedy Stewart, who quite famously was arrested at the top of Burnaby Mountain. So you know where he, where his allegiances lie with regard to the actual subject matter of this, but he's also the mayor of Vancouver Mm -hmm. and he is concerned about the taxpaying citizens of Vancouver, but he's also concerned with uh, maintaining the voice of those who want to be heard. Here's uh, Mayor Kennedy Stewart saying just a snippet of what we talked about with regard to uh, when I Post the, are we getting to the point of injunctions? How are we going to solve this? Secretary mm-hmm. Chief. So, uh, you know, I'm always open to dialogue, uh, you know, and I've made that clear to, to the local Indigenous leaders and, and First Nations chiefs. Uh, but there's really nobody for me to talk to at this point. But I'm always, always open to talking and it, just to open a line of communication because, uh, you know, these things only ever get solved through dialogue. So one of the organizers, Natalie Knight, we did put her in touch with uh, the communications department of the mayor because he said, like, send me a number. I'd yeah. like to talk to somebody. He said there's nobody for me to talk to at this point. I get, and we don't know. I know that the protesters are quite well organized. It's very apparent when you're down there that they are organized and they are able to communicate amongst themselves about where they are going to, you know, cause the next uh, demo or st- set up the next demonstration. Uh, disruption. Disruption. Yeah. And it is a disruption. That's it, true. It That's is. the name of the game. And when I interviewed uh, Natalie Knight, one of the organizers, she was explaining how she is literally taking sick days from her full-time yeah. job, has someone else taking care of her big dogs, uh, you know, so that she could can do this. And it's a 18 to 20 hour a day yes. job for, for her and those who are, are on board and believe with her. Uh, and she was very specific, going back to our hot question of the day, wanting to be called a land defender, not a protester. Mm-hmm. So uh, get in on our hot question of the day at CKNW uh, to to chime in on that. I do want to get to Premier John Horgan because he kind of sounded like he had the same script. Uh, I shouldn't say that Kennedy Stewart was scripted, but it sounds like they are definitely putting the same sort of, let's calm it down and find some dialogue. There's no quick fix when it comes to addressing differences of opinion within families, within communities, within clans. 203 bans under the Indian Act in Canada. 13 houses, five clans and what's so in territory, speaks to the challenges that investors have, the challenges that government has, and the, the challenges, in fact, Indigenous communities have. And that's why Scott Fraser and I visited the Office of the Wet'suwet'en in August to talk to hereditary chiefs about their concerns. We continue to have dialogue uh, on a whole range of issues when it comes to Wet'suwet'en and other communities across the province. So dialogue is very key. Everybody wants to have a conversation about it, keep it calm. But I feel like that's hard to do. As... Uh, you know, uh, people will make, um, they will say that media is not, you know, the biased or whatever. But I mean, the goal of the media is to re- remain neutral. Like when we are covering the events, we try to remain neutral and just describe about what is happening, what the scene is, what's the mood. You know, like when I was out at Canby and Broadway, I wasn't out there spewing my opinion about, no. you know, can I get down the street? No, that's not my point. That's not my place in my job. Maybe I could say that to my friends if I felt that way. But we are supposed to be there and to be neutral. On the talk shows here, that's a different story. But for reporters, you're supposed to be neutral. And I feel like when both sides get so heated and start just 
spewing horrible things. Anger. Yes. And labeling Anger, people. Vitriol. Yes. Taking things out of context. That's when our dialogue is going to break down. And I just feel like both sides really need to think about what they're trying to achieve here. And when speaking with, because we're talking about the hereditary chiefs and the elected chiefs and, and Gord McDonald had it. We're going to post the uh, the link of, of mm-hmm. Gord's reaction to protesters, pro- protesters versus land defenders, because that is our hot question of the day. And sort of he really brought it back to this is for Wet'suwet'en to sort internally because right. really this is where the fraction is because five of 13, five out of the 13 hereditary chiefs are, are against the coastal link pipeline. Yes. Oh, five right. out, of, out of 20 bands from one end of the pipeline to the other are for it. for it. And it's just, it's interesting that, that it's within, it's within the, let's hear from Chief Namox, who's actually Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief, who is now part of these meetings that are taking place internally and what their goal is. Note, uh, routes that were put out there, were put out there from day one. We're, we're highly vigilant. We're highly reasonable people. And that was what they had turned down. There is no other alternate other than for them to leave peacefully. They are the ones that brought in the Royal Canadian Police. They are the ones that got the province of British Columbia all riled up, and now they painted themselves into a corner. It was the violence that came at us, and we remained peaceful. But from day one, we said, no, we will not have our rivers, land, salmon, food, and medicines threatened by this project, and the answer from us will not change. They need to come up with a peaceful exit strategy. That's what's on the table today. Absolutely. We will not change our minds. They've already brought guns onto our territory and we're still here saying no. So that's the peaceful exit strategy of the RCMP who are on their land right now. Mm -hmm. And the interesting piece of that is that the Wet'suwet'en have offered Coastal GasLink two alternative routes. Right, but they have said that they would cause more um, environmental damage and it's not feasible for the project. They said it would cost more money. Exactly. Thank you, Claire Allen. Let's continue this conversation. Jody at cknw.com. Time to talk about a brewing story around the sale of Grouse Mountain and rumors of wrongdoing or unproven uh, facts that are coming to light in this landmark local ski hill deal. The sale. Joining us in studio is the journalist who is bringing this complex story to the forefront. Ian Young of the South China Mor- Morning Post is in studio. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jody. Thank oh, you. Oh, it's good to have you here. Can you give us an idea of what is Project Snowflake? Yeah, Project Snowflake um, supposedly was the name of this deal uh, wherein a group of investors, Canadian investors and a giant Chinese investment firm bought uh, Grouse Mountain a couple of years ago. I think it was in 2017. Now, that was recently resold. um, uh, But what's happened is that one of the supposed co-investors is claiming 30% of the proceeds of that sale because he says that he was originally intended to be a 30% stakeholder in this deal. He says that he uh, fronted the deposit to the McLaughlin family, a $2 million deposit. And he says that he paid for all sorts of um, uh, expenses associated with the purchase and therefore he's owed 30%. Uh, he says he was cut out of the deal fraudulently. Now, that's unproven in court, but that's what he's claiming in his lawsuit. So how much is at stake here for him? Well, I mean, he says that he um, was guarantor on loans 
uh, to originally buy the the resort uh, that were worth about 100 million US dollars, so about 130 million. And I think the asking price originally back in 2016 by the McLaughlins was something in the vicinity of 200 million dollars. But one of the problems in reporting on this story is that this is a private sale, and the resale was a private sale, so we don't actually know how much money changed hands. But the fact that uh, this supposed co-investor says he went guarantor on. 130 million Canadian dollars worth of loans. That gives us some sort of idea, at least. Reading your uh, column on this is just fascinating. The numbers are staggering. And the business involved, the CMIG, is, like you said, is a massive. This is a Chinese behemoth. This is one of the giant Chinese firms. This is something that was headed uh, recently towards a you know hundred towards a trillion yuan's worth of assets. Uh, so it had these massive ambitions. And this is a company that it's not actually a Chinese government company, but it was backed by the Chinese government. It was created at the behest of the Chinese Prime Minister, the Chinese Premier Li Keqiang, back in two thousand and fourteen. And he said, "Create this company. It's going to be like China's BlackRock." And uh, you know you had about fifty or fifty or sixty. Chinese tycoons threw in um, billions of dollars to create this company. Now it's in deep trouble now because um, it's it's facing a massive liquidity crisis. And uh, that's one reason to be very interested in this deal. And when you say it's a private deal, so we aren't learning, we don't know much of, we don't, don't have the transparency until it comes to a court. That's right. I mean, uh, this, this lawsuit is unresponded at the moment. It was only lodged, I think, in the first week of February. Um, but there hasn't been a response yet. I tried to get a response from um, uh, Kenny Joe, who was the head of CM Canada, which was the company that actually supposedly bought, that did buy uh, Grouse Mountain. I tried to get a comment from uh, Liao Fang, who is uh, the president of CM Canada. Uh, didn't get any response. And, you know, I did approach uh, the, the, the plaintiff's lawyers as well, and, and he said that he, he would just have to, he just have to defer to what was in the, um, in the filing. He didn't want to talk about it either. So the main target of the lawsuit is Kenny Zhou. Yeah, Kenny Zhou, you might remember him uh, back in 2017. He was the young man who fronted this deal and he went before uh, cameras and did you know, did press events where he said, oh, this is an all-Canadian deal. This is an all-Canadian company, CM Canada, that's buying this, this, uh, this iconic resort that overlooks Vancouver. You know, everyone sees grouse, everyone knows grouse. But the, the involvement of CMIG does raise some questions. How Canadian was this? You know, they say that it was a 40% ownership stake. But at the same time, uh, CM Canada, the, the overarching company that bought it, the president of this was Liao Fang. Liao Fang is the CEO of CMIG International. Both Kenny Zhou and Liao Fang have w- work out of an office here in downtown Vancouver that is the, the, the headquarters of CMIG Investment. So, Which is the Chinese behemoth company that you were referencing worth it, a trillion. It certainly appears to have the same name. You want, yeah. <laughs> you know, so um, th- there are, as I said, this is a private, um, a, these were private deals, these two, the sale and resale of grouse were private deals. So um, outside of the courts, we don't have any entitlement to necessarily demand to see uh, what happened here. But what a brilliant PR ploy if... To call it uh, an all-Canadian deal, yeah. given the players that you just yeah, I mean, mentioned. I mean, everybody can buy whatever they want globally. I mean, we're an international landmark city, and you can see why that would be a jewel in anybody's crown. Sure. Look, Kenny Joe lives here in, 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 in Vancouver, certainly. His, his home address is here in Vancouver. Uh, Liao Fung, um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure where he lives, but 
in legal filings, which is you know his comp- corporate documents that have been filed with the beast, with the government here, uh, he lists his his contact address as this downtown Vancouver office for CMIG Investment. So um, it does it does sort of place a funny complexion though this closeness of the relationship between the buyers and CMIG, which is certainly a Chinese government backed company. Which is the biggest of statements. Oh yeah. I mean, this is, you don't have to necessarily see anything nefarious in no. this, but um, CMIG acts at the behest of the Chinese government. It exists at the behest of the Chinese government and its activities were largely directed um, by policy directions, you know, in t- by the Chinese government in terms of creating um, uh, the, this sort of Belt and Road Initiative of investments all around the world and uh, things like that, you know. I mean, you look at their website and it's filled with these... Um, you know, uh, Communist Party, the government government pronouncements about how it was going to um, work to fulfil various government policy um, goals. I mean, that that's no secret. Where do we go from here, given given the non response? Is there anything you can do to keep up on this, or, or well, who who was the mountain resold to? Oh, it was sold resold to Northland, which is a big uh, Vancouver based. Um, uh, a resort owner. I think it's one of the biggest North American resort owners. Uh, not, they're certainly not involved in this lawsuit. And as I, I want right. to repeat again, that the claims in the lawsuit are unproven. It's a bit unresponded. Um, uh, and Northland is not accused. CMIG itself is not even one of the respondents. It's uh, mainly targeting Kenny Zhou and uh, his companies, um, the companies that are associated with this deal. It is really a fascinating read. So uh, you should be following Ian Young of the South China Morning Post uh, on Twitter to stay up to speed on a number of articles that you have posted in the last couple of days have had me, my mind blown a little bit because it's not just your typical subject matter. There was another, the Valentine Vancouver one that I had to read like four times before I could really wrap my head about around it. So head to Ian's uh, Twitter feed, uh, follow along, Vancouver correspondent with the South China Morning Post. Continuing our conversation with Ian Young, the Vancouver correspondent with the South China Morning Post. Uh, Very happy to have you in here on Family Day. Not lost on me that you've come all the way in studio. Thank you for that. No problem. I want to talk now about COVID-19, otherwise known as the coronavirus. Um, We did talk about a week ago, it might have been exactly a week ago, in fact, uh, about the hollowing out or the businesses suffering at some spaces in Richmond. And today we are uh, seeing politicians and and health ministers, uh, you know, having gatherings in Chinatown and Metro Vancouver, in in the city of Vancouver, that is, uh, to talk about how businesses are beginning to suffer uh, there as well. What are you what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Well, yeah, I think we were we were ahead of the the story a little bit, I think, last week. Um, But it was clear to anyone that was involved in the Chinese community that this was happening. Um, You know, it. It's clear that if you go to a banquet-style Chinese restaurant, and I'm including in that um, uh, communal dining restaurants like hot pot restaurants and things like that, business has fallen off a cliff. You know, you go down to to, to any sort of Cantonese-style banquet-style restaurant that has those big tables, business has fallen off a cliff. These are these are pretty empty. Um, but there is a difference, you know. It's not all Chinese restaurants that are like that. I mean, um, some Hong Kong-style restaurants that serve individual dishes like um, what you call a cha chanting Western-style Hong Kong restaurant that I was there at one on the weekend and business was uh, business was booming. Um, 
but this is a phenomenon that's really hit some businesses very, very hard. And also that the one that's booming perhaps isn't located in Chinatown. Sure. Well, I, I shouldn't give restaurants plugs, but the one we were at was in um, on Canby Street. And I think people's concerns are um, more closely focused on places like Richmond and in Chinatown. Uh, than say somewhere on you know an open thoroughfare like uh, like Canby Street. What um, Gord McDonald on his uh, news was talking about the latest numbers: seventy one thousand uh, confirmed cases, seventeen hundred seventy two deaths. Um, the health minister coming out, or uh, the public health uh, authority coming out and saying it, that this is not as deadly, it seems, as SARS and MERS when it comes to the majority of people who are a confirmed case. Eighty percent of those cases, uh, the symptoms are mild. So those are the the facts behind what we know at this point, but also the Diamond Princess. I mean, I've spoken with uh, Spencer Fehrenbacher, who is now in the United States. He got off on that plane today. Uh, The Fort Langley man who had been on the Diamond Princess in quarantine for, I guess he was 12 days total uh, in quarantine after being stuck on there. I mean, I think it was a month that he has been on this boat. Um, just speaking to like how that cruise ship has sort of become worse than any other mm. for concentration of this I think that, virus. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a couple of things at play there. I think we do need. Um, obviously, we don't. Want, there shouldn't be a panic, but at the same time, um, the the numbers um, coming out of China have been pretty rubbery and I think that there is an should be um, an appropriate degree of scepticism about the exact accuracy of those numbers for all sorts of reasons, um, largely to do with China's uh, tendency towards a lack of transparency but also towards because of the, just the nature of, um, of these sort of novel um, outbreaks. It's very difficult to get a handle on numbers and data at the early stages of an outbreak. Um, but yeah, there, there's there's a lot of reason to be sceptical about some of the numbers that do come out of China. So, well, somebody, I sent you a, an article that I had found uh, that basically said the, the numbers that are coming out of China are the exact formula that you could find if you Googled outbreak. Yeah, but the, 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 I think one one way, one reason that people are sceptical because it just looks so neat. I think that the mortality data, that is, you know, deaths to known infections has been sitting on pretty much 2.4% for quite a long time. Um, but that doesn't exactly mirror the experience that people typically have with these kinds of outbreaks. So there's scepticism there, you know. There's also scepticism about... Um, you know, the, the, the infection data, for instance, you know, that was artificially choked for a long time because of the, simply because of the lack of, of, of testing kits, you know, so what you're, what you're sh- recording is not the known number of, in, not the number of infections, but the number of infections that could have been tested. So that's, a, that's one way to choke the data, not deliberately, but just because of the facts of the matter. Worth reiterating as well, what we spoke about last week, uh, highly unusual to watch the the Chinese government so motivated that they would build a 1,000 patient hospital in a 10-day span? Well, I think that we've seen a big pivot from um, Chinese authorities. In the early days, of course, we had that terrible situation where the whistleblowers on this outbreak uh, were actually being targeted by police and told to cool it. Um, and one of those whistleblowers, Dr. Lee, unfortunately died recently. Um, and that's sparked this massive backlash in China, um, a massive scepticism about the data and um, demands for transparency. And we've seen 
no no lesser person than President Xi himself uh, has been um, uh, sort of spearheading that and coming out in public and saying, well, I was on top of this a couple of weeks ago. I was, on to- I was you know, giving statements back in early February talking about the severity of the coronavirus. One of the things that I, uh, I am definitely a fan of following your uh, Twitter feed, uh, your pinned tweet about uh, from your blog, your Honkoover blog, mm. about wearing of masks. Can you reiterate? Yeah, I, I think that here in Vancouver, there's a lot of scepticism about masks. And I think authorities have, have not said that people should wear masks. But that's not the same as saying people should not wear masks. You know, there are reasons why mask wearing may or may not work. Um, mainly because people don't wear them properly. But there is, um, you know, there's a long tradition of wearing masks and people who were in Hong Kong at the time of SARS, um, that's really marked them. Um, They uh, behave in different ways. And, um, you know, there's a a greater degree of caution, I'd probably, is the way I'd put it, um, about these kinds of outbreaks and the unknown unknowns of this kind of disease outbreak than you see in the non-Chinese communities here in Vancouver. And there is a bit of that cultural stigma that comes with that as well, that is sort of evolving as we experience COVID-19, especially here. Oh, sure. I mean, there's there's definitely been um, a backlash, um, I think, against some Chinese people. Um, There's definitely been um, uh, racist incidents about coronavirus where people have used that as some sort of racist hook to target Chinese people. Um, but at the same time, th- there's also been um, I've seen stories saying that oh the panic is the panic is worse than the outbreak the panic um, or the racism about it is going to be worse than the outbreak and I th- also think that's kind of jumping the gun a bit as well because we don't know much about the outbreak yet I know we 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 are a long way off from um, being on top of. Uh, what the final outcome is going to be. And I think that's a big piece of what I've learned from you, Ian, is how differently this is playing out here in Canadian media as it is in Chinese media, both mainland Chinese and and Hong Kong. Yeah, media. and I, I'd also say also too in Chinese media here in right here in Vancouver right. is playing it very differently. Always appreciate your perspective. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks, Jody. At the end of the conversation about COVID-19, always very relevant to point out that the number one best thing that you can do... Wash your hands. There it is. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Do that. Don't, anytime you're out, out anywhere, anytime you touch, you touch your steering wheel in your car, and the last time you were out in your car, you went grocery shopping, guess what's on the steering wheel in your car? everything you touched at the grocery store. So wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. If you're wearing a mask, it's meant for single use. Keep that in mind. Uh, You've got to follow Ian Young, Vancouver correspondent from the South China Morning Post on Twitter. And if you don't mind, follow me as well. And this next topic is a tough one to stomach, yet it is a very important one to discuss. Credit to Rosa Marcatelli, who uh, is part of Go Go Public. Um, The story about RCMP mistaking a, a stroke victim for a drunk and leaving him half paralyzed in a jail cell for hours. Obviously, there is a lawsuit here. So let's bring in Paul Doroshenko, a lawyer at Acumen Law, to talk a little more on this subject. Paul, thanks for doing this on Family Day. No, it's my pleasure, Jody. Nice to speak with you. Can you give us the Coles notes on this story? It is just devastating. Sure. Well, this fellow was detained uh, because the police believed he was intoxicated in a public place, but it turns out he was actually having a stroke. Uh, he was taken back to the Airdrie uh, RCMP detachment, and he was lodged in a cell where he was for 18 hours and 18 minutes, uh, with hours and hours and hours where nobody checked on him. And obviously, he wasn't sobering up because, well, he was having a stroke. So he's laying on a concrete floor, cold concrete floor, having a stroke. 
uh, and they sought no medical attention for him. Um, you know, they never, they jumped to the conclusion, obviously, that he was intoxicated at the beginning uh, and kept him there. And, and obviously the damage from the stroke is long lasting. So he's suing. There's so yeah. many questions that go with this, Paul. Like, how do you pick up a, somebody for public intoxication and not do some test to see if they have ingested alcohol at all? Because he claims well, he had not. Well, the thing is that the police are, I mean, first of all, you're not, you can't lawfully just compel somebody to provide a uh, breath sample unless it's pursuant to the criminal code, and that's got to be connected to driving. Okay. So the police can't do that, first of all. Good to know. They're also sort of trained that uh, everybody's drunk. Uh, if you go through their manuals that, uh, you know, in BC, we have the uh, Alco Sensor FST Operators Manual, and it just sort of assumes that, um, you know, the person you're dealing with is intoxicated, and your only role there as a police officer is to gather that evidence to prove it, not to assess the person to see whether or not they're in medical distress. Um, and uh, and ultimately, I mean, the, the, you can't necessarily provide a sample in the circumstances where you're having a stroke, right? You, you, you can't blow. So you've got somebody who's having a stroke. Are you going to make them try and blow into a breathalyzer? I think, uh, they're, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think Alan Rule, who is the man at the center of this, I think he actually requested to take a breathalyzer because he said those- he hadn't dr- had a drink. Sure, and in those circumstances, they can do it. If a person is voluntarily uh, offering to provide it, especially to exonerate themselves, and people do that fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. But it's not uncommon. I mean, this usually happens in a driving situation, right? This right. is a intoxicated in public place uh, situation. But this has happened. I've had clients who had the flu and were arrested because they were sick or had pneumonia or what have you. Um, and, you know, they may have had one drink that led to their odor of liquor on their breath or they were using cough syrup or something like that. Next thing you know, they're back in the detachment. They cannot get enough breath to provide a sample. So they're charged with refusal uh, and impaired driving. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, like, the police did nothing to try and assess the, the, the other reasons for the symptoms than just the assumption, uh, starting from the assumption of impaired driving. This is just such a heartbreaking situation because, I mean, the details that, that carry on, I mean, Rural tried to, to call his wife for a pickup. Uh, the calls went unanswered because she was actually visiting family in Scotland. Uh, so over the next 12 hours, there he is suffering a massive stroke on a jail cell floor. And so where does this go from here if it is, you know, a, a real issue, a persistent issue, some would say, with how prisoners are handled? Um, from a legal perspective, where, where does he go from, from here? Well, I mean, he's got a great negligence case, right? You know, the police had taken him into custody. Uh, they had an obligation to assess his, uh, assess his condition and, and ensure that he was not in medical distress, and they didn't do it. I mean, they didn't assess him. Uh, so they are negligent, and there's no doubt that, you know, <laughs> in a circumstance like this, if the facts play out as they sure do look like on the video, that they're going to be able to establish that, and ultimately there's going to be some sort of uh, financial compensation, but nothing can compensate this guy for 18 hours and 18 minutes on a, on a floor, a concrete floor of a jail cell while he's having a stroke. And that's the piece of this, like, had he received medical attention in an expedited fashion, what would his quality of life be today versus 18 hours of suffering and then getting medical attention? Like, clearly his left side is, is, is damaged, if not completely paralyzed. He can walk, but certainly his left side is, is impacted by this. So, I mean, how do you, how do you put a, put a, 
value on pain and suffering such as this? I, I wouldn't even know where to come from from a from a legal perspective. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of this has been has been dealt with in the court by the courts over many years in car accident cases, right? right. Um, so you can assess the the damages, and they come up with a number. I, I don't think the number ever actually. You know, it, it, a, a number, a dollar number never can compensate you for something like this. Uh, there's nothing that can compensate you for something like this. There's people who spend years in jail for crimes they didn't commit and are ultimately exonerated. And they had come up with a number. And it, you know, every time you look at it, you're thinking that does not, you know, I would not give up 10 years of my life in jail for the purpose of, of Any that. amount. So, Any amount. Like, they, you, you can't really be compensated. No. Uh, and I'm sure, uh, you know, no matter what, I, I wouldn't be satisfied with it if I had that. I mean, uh, it, it's just awful. It's and just awful. We're with Paul Durashenko, uh, lawyer, Acumen Law. When, when looking at this case and thinking about the protectionist nature that the police in, in Alberta, the RCMP at, at the root of this, uh, must go into, the damage control positioning that they have to take now, how long could something like this drag out, even given all of the evidence that has already been gathered? Well, a quick settlement is a better settlement uh, because uh, this fellow has suffered already and you want to try and minimize the suffering that he's going to have. So it's up to them, you know, through their lawyers to assess the thing. I, 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 when you read the, the arguments they make in their, in their notice of defense, uh, it's frustrating because they do the same thing that many lawyers do. You know, they, they allege things like that the RCMP checked on him every 15 minutes, but the video doesn't do anything. No. They allege that they gave him water when he was banging on the door asking for water, but it's clear apparently in the video, I mean, I haven't watched 18 hours of it, but apparently it's clear in the video that they never gave him any water. So, but, you know, taking that position always undermines their their credibility in the eyes of the public. Um, you know, the courts may not uh, view it that way, but it's not the type of thing that ends up going to trial. It's the type of thing that's usually settled. Yeah, in the, in the Go Public story, it says the first visit that the police officers made to the cell was more than 12 hours after he was first locked up, and the officer was eight seconds in the cell. So I, let's hope that, that, uh, the, that your words ring true, that a quick settlement is best for all. Well, I'm sure it's going to happen relatively quickly. The issue is, you know, how many more people is this going to happen to in the country? And is the police training going to change? Uh, and, and, you know, is there going to be any responsibility for it? Is anybody ever going to actually take responsibility for it? Like, I look at the police training. I look at the manuals. Of course, this is what I do is impaired driving law. And it is all focused on this person that you pulled over is, is drunk. Uh, and never looking for any other symptoms. And this is a known thing. It's a known thing that there's lots of other uh, medical conditions that can lead to symptoms that are similar to impairment. Hmm. And the police jump to the conclusion, particularly if you're behind the wheel. And that's a real problem because you end up with circumstances like this where they just assume, we've got a drunk here, we're just going to throw him in a jail cell. All right. A training, a training fix here uh, could save uh, many people from going down a path, uh, an undeserved path, as was in this case. Paul, thanks for doing this. Yeah, nice to speak with you. That's Have a good day. You too. Paul Doroshenko, lawyer at Acumen Law. Time now to check in with, well, you know he's one of my favorites. He is the Global BC uh, Legislative Bureau Chief, the Chief Political Reporter. Keith Baldry is on the line with us, even on Family Day. I keep pulling you in here, Keith. I, n- I never stop working. You too do- mu- there's too much to do. You seriously don't stop working, and today is a very busy day as we prepare for Budget Day tomorrow. 
Yeah, I'm not, ex- not expecting a lot of surprises in the budget. Uh, we basically know what the numbers are going to be because the, the NDP, like the Liberals before them, publish a three-year fiscal plan with every budget. So we expect there to be a very small, razor-thin surplus, likely less than two or $300 million. Uh, what I'm going to keep an eye on, uh, Jody, is the uh, the revenue side of the budget because right. the spending is pretty well known. I don't think Harold James is going to go on a spending spree. He doesn't have the money. It's going to be interesting to see how much money they, they expect to collect in taxation. That will tell us the state of the economy. The economy has been slowing. The economic growth numbers keep dropping from all forecasters, including the government, by about a half a percentage point. And that means less uh, people spending less money, which means less taxes being collected. So I think that's where the interest is going to lie tomorrow. Seems like there are so many little pieces of the budget puzzle that I'm curious about, like the land transfer taxes have to be going down rather exponentially given the change in how our housing market is no mm-hmm. longer being used as a stock market, frankly. Yeah, yeah according to the fiscal plan, they, they expect it to be flatlining, $1.9 billion, but you're right. It's hard to see how that's not going to drop. It's hard to see how uh, more than a billion dollars is going to come in from the forestry industry when the mm-hmm. forestry industry is in absolute crisis. Sales tax, you would assume it would go down because people are spending less right now because yep. there's just not as much economic activity. So the numbers would seem to be going down rather than up. Uh, in, on most taxation lines. And who knows, maybe there's a, a tax increase tomorrow that we're unaware of. Wouldn't be surprised if a half a point was added to either the small business tax or the corporate uh, income tax. I have no knowledge whether that's going to happen or not, but that's always a possibility for a finance minister who's sort of getting close to the line of tipping into deficit based on the last quarterly report we saw. And what about ICBC being a part of this? Well, it's part of the budget, but Rick McCandless, uh, for, who has intervener status at the uh, Utilities Commission, who's a former senior civil servant, just put a paper out today saying ICBC's internal uh, finances should not affect the government's bottom line positively or negatively. Nevertheless, it does show up as a line item, a negative line item uh, for the last couple of years uh, affecting the government's bottom line. I think it's an accounting argument more than anything. But that aside, in the last budget, they had projected this year, this current fiscal year that's going to end uh, March. March 31st, that ICBC would shave about a billion dollars off the bottom line in terms of getting rid of those losses. And uh, it will be interesting tomorrow whether or not they've abandoned that uh, that prediction or whether they're sticking to it. That's a lot of money, and we have yet to see evidence that that's actually going to happen. Can you give us an idea of your sort of roadmap for tomorrow? Because you go into lockup, right? We're going to lock up at around 8.39 a.m. Uh, for anybody who's never been on the wonderful thing known as a lockup, you get your cell phone taken away. Uh, you get a stack of budget documents, and you've got nothing to do for the next five hours uh, till 2 o'clock but study the budget, which means you fill your head full of, of figures. There's experts in there from the from the civil service, deputy ministers and assistant deputy ministers to walk you through some, some of the intricacies. Carol James, the finance minister, comes in around 10 a.m. and gives, gives a presentation. She comes back around noon and has a news conference. On the other side of the wall is uh, what are called the stakeholders, which are all the interest groups, from business groups to unions uh, to accounting associations who all are given the lock, uh, their own lockup. Uh, and the only thing that's uh, evolved over the years, Jody, is the food gets marginally better every year <laughs> in terms of sandwiches and, and healthy things. <laughs> well, look at them taking care of you to make sure. But, uh, I mean, what does, well, Keith thing- ba- what does Keith Baldry do without his phone? How am I going to reach you tomorrow when you're locked up for exactly when I'm on the air filling in for Simi here? Yeah, it's quite a void that has to be filled. One thing we're going to be interested in tomorrow, Jody, is what happens to protesters mm. tomorrow? Do they mm. show up at the legislature with an injunction in place? I just talked to Speaker Daryl Plekis, just ran into me. He doesn't think anything's going to happen here at the ledge. But we did talk about what what happens if they decide to have 
have a demonstration at the lockup, which is at the convention center, because Carol James and government officials are going to be in there. Uh, it'll be interesting whether or not they, I don't think they try to blockade that because it also includes the Empress Hotel, and I don't think you can block, blockade a private hotel like that. But uh, that's the other side story tomorrow that may develop. No idea whether that's going to happen or not, but that's another thing we're keeping our eye on. Well, and that's a fascinating piece of this puzzle because Daryl Plekis says, for those who uh, hadn't heard, Daryl Plekis was able to secure that sweeping injunction. You broke that news as you uh, grabbed that document from the courthouse. Is there? What's the mood around the ledge uh, with regard to that, to the security staff and, and employees now? Still a little, little apprehension. I was down here yesterday uh, in the afternoon talking to security, and um, they're, they're reasonably confident n- nothing's going to happen, but they are mindful that it could. And uh, they're happy the injunction's in place. Uh, but people are still a little rattled from what happened last week in terms of the office staff. I'm talking to people on Friday and this morning. People are still sort of shook up over, over what happened. They hope it doesn't happen again. I don't think it will because that injunction, as you, you say, is very sweeping in its powers. And the police, which includes security here at the legislature, have the immediate power to uh, the, the power to immediately arrest someone who's trying to block the entrances. So I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow, but uh, there's still a little apprehension out there. And BC Ferries was on with us earlier today. Uh, they have the preemptive injunction mm-hmm. to ensure that things continue to move as far as ferries and, and no blockades at any of the terminals. Are we going to, do you think, see more preemptive injunctions moving forward here? I think uh, various institutions would be wise to secure them. Now, these are not guarantees that nothing's going to happen. People can defy injunctions and pay the penalty for them. We've seen that in the past. Uh, that's what happened up in uh, in uh, Wasoatan Territory. Yeah, that, in that Houston, started this yeah. whole thing. They defied the injunction. They got arrested, and now it's spread. Uh, I'm not sure where we're headed on this, Jody. We're into a whole different new frontier here when it comes to protesting and blockades, and injunctions may not be enough to stop this, and may, neither may be mass arrests. I mean, People just keep coming and lying on the line, and, and uh, this has become more than a Wet'suwet'en uh, natural gas pipeline fight. This is j- basically a fight about all pipelines because the environmental movement has moved into this and taken advantage of uh, the climate out there to uh, to assert their influence and control over this spreading protest. Now they've tied up a bridge in Ontario between the U.S. and Canada. So this is spreading rather than shrinking. And uh, Keith, I want to talk to you specifically about sort of how the elected officials are reacting to or perhaps speaking about carefully worded speaking about Mm -hmm. these uh, coastal gas link uh, pipeline protests and the disputes surrounding the Wet'suwet'en. What what are you seeing and and what do you think about Justin Trudeau's uh, travel plans changing? Well, it was smart to kill the Barbados trip. That looked uh, terrible optics. It was reminiscent of the Australian Prime Minister, you know, being in Hawaii during the wildfires ravaging that country. No, politicians have to be at home to deal with this type of thing. Having said that, I'm not sure exactly what Justin Trudeau or John Horgan can do about this situation. It's one thing to say we're going to resolve this through negotiations, but uh, there's no evidence that the other side's willing to negotiate. As I say, this is morphed into a much bigger protest than just the West Sowetan um, fight against that gas pipeline. It's now got other parties on this protest. You see leaders of the environmental activist movement now taking charge of this. Uh, so I don't think uh, negotiations are necessarily going to resolve this. And then you flip it on the other side. Okay, let's go arrest everyone. I'm not sure a confrontation, which could lead to an OCA-like situation, <coughs> at least in Ontario, uh, is good for anyone either. 
either. But uh, this is starting to have a, a dire economic impact on the country. I, I don't think a lot of people realize just how much of our the stuff we consume on a daily basis actually arrives via train or uh, tankers and, and uh, tanker uh, uh, cargo ships. And it's uh, it's when we see blockades of ports and rail lines, you're basically grinding the economy to a halt. But Short of mass arrests or some miracle on the negotiating table, this thing's going to go on for some time. So politically, Keith, and pardon my naivete here, but um, watching news reports a week ago uh, in Paris, let's say, I mean, where the Yellow Vest uh, movement really exploded, um, there were literal um, police officers firing water cannons at firefighters in a protest, in a clash of police. I would never imagine seeing police fighting firefighters who are, are, are protesting for better working conditions. And then like th- seeing that kind of clash, that kind of throwdown, and we're so far the other end of the spectrum with this, we, we need to have the dialogue. There are some really frustrated people in, in between. What, mm-hmm. what happens when the general public, because the frustration that I'm sure you see on social media, we see in our email inboxes here on the, on the radio station um, computers, that people are frustrated. Like, I'm, are you concerned that they might take matters into their own hands if law enforcement doesn't step up? Oh, I think that has to be a real concern. I worry that someone's going to just lose it yeah. uh, on one of these blockades. Well, if, if, for instance, if Camby and Broadway were to be shut down again for an extended period of time, I worry that someone would just sort of lose it while they're driving the car and, and just lose all sense of of uh, proportion and reality and do something stupid. I think that remains a possibility. And the police are going to have to w- take that into account as well as their chief responsibility right now is ensuring there's public safety. They've got to at some point be aware that public safety may be jeopardized if there's a prolonged blockade or or stoppage of something that uh, will infuriate the public. There's no easy answer here, though. We're in uncharted territory with these mass type of, of protests. Uh, these are not orderly, necessarily, protests where everybody gathers in an agreed uh, space, uh, whether it's you know the front of the art gallery or the legislature. Right. This goes beyond that. This is sort of a, akin to a guerrilla army moving un, uh, with no notice whatsoever from place to place to place uh, and staying there for either a short period of time to move on to somewhere else or for an extended period of time. And, and again, short of mass arrests, which could lead to an ugly confrontation that could get violent, or a miracle at a negotiating table, uh, I just don't see how this ends. Right now, those five hereditary chiefs of the Wasowatan are probably the most powerful people in, in Canada right now, because only they can resolve this at the table. And uh, so far, this has been going on for 10 years. It's hitting a crescendo, and there's no reason to think it's going to be solved through negotiations. So reiterate for those who don't really understand what those five hereditary chiefs mean what that equation the five of 13 five of 13 uh increasingly you're seeing more wasoatan voices speak up in favor of the project saying we are we want to share in the prosperity here eloquent people like candace george who's emerged as one of the the chief spokespeople for uh wasoatan other than the hereditary chiefs saying that she has much right to speak and that more people support the project than oppose it. But right now, given the governance structure of Wasowatan, uh, those five hereditary chiefs are the key to solving this thing. I asked Gord McDonald earlier the same question because it's our hot question of the day. I know there's been a debate on social media. It's more semantics than anything else, but they are the protesters would prefer if we call them land defenders. Uh, your thoughts on land defender versus protester versus can we just find a resolution here? 
Well, I was at the at the pro- protest here at the legislature, and the protesters were calling themselves protesters. Uh, some of them were calling themselves land defenders, but uh, I think uh, protester is a neutral term. It's, it is a protest. It's not necessarily, and it, particularly when the only people I think can call themselves land defenders are actually Wasoatan people, um, and that does not include the vast majority of the people who are, for instance, at the legislature last week. Most of those people seem to be university students and not members from of that particular First Nation. So for now, our style guide says it's protest. Protesters, and uh, I don't see any reason to change that. One more question for you. When I was speaking with Hereditary Chief Namox last week, who is one of the Hereditary Chiefs, one of the five, um, who was on his way to the, the smoke after the planning meeting, and not an all-clan all meeting, but a gathering, uh, and he was saying that the big uh, issue for Wet'suwet'en, um, Hereditary Chiefs and elected chiefs is to resolve what is happening in northern BC and 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 take care of that, the, the showdown between RCMP and Wet'suwet'en people um, uh, sort of at that blockade point. And then he was mentioning, because Coastal Gaslink on their website says, we've offered two alternate routes. And Chief Nomox actually said, well, we've also offered two alternate routes that, that Coastal Gaslink turned down. What do you know of that? Well, I think there's some confusion there. Uh, Coastal Gas says if you greatly vary the route, this project becomes vastly more uh, expensive and presents new environmental uh, hazards and challenges that aren't don't exist with this current pipeline. I think that side of the argument hasn't been delved deep enough for, by anyone yet, and maybe that's where a resolution lies, a mm. compromise on the route. Uh, and I think we're at the be- sort of at the beginning of revisiting that particular conversation that was ha- basically halted a number of years ago, but no- nobody's really been talking about it for a good five years. But Maybe they go back and discuss that as an option, as a, as a little the compromise. Obviously, is required to end this thing, but uh, I don't see an end in sight anytime soon. Well, very much appreciate you doing this on anytime. what should be your family day vacay holiday. Keith Baldre here with us on the Simi Sarah Show. Uh, I'll be posting the the whole link of our discussion if you're curious, if you just joined us, if you just tuned in, because lots was learned there. As always with Keith Baldry, you should uh, follow him on Twitter at Keith Baldry. He is my favorite follow on Twitter and. And this next conversation is going to be a fascinating one because so many speculating as to why Canada would use Huawei's 5G technology given some of our relations with China. Other side is, hello, most of our uh, telecom infrastructure already is thick with Huawei uh, built uh, bits. Yeah, that's my technical term. Uh, but I really don't understand the ins and outs of it. And then we see a story that has just moved today where the U.S. have said that they're putting forth legislation that basically uh, would outright prohibit the sharing of United States intelligence with countries that permit operation of Huawei fifth generation telecommunications technology within their borders. Hello, that's Canada. So I thought, okay, let's get someone in here who knows what they're talking about with regard to Huawei and what we're looking at with other countries being concerned about this and where we are at. And for that, we bring in Ari Goldkind, criminal lawyer, whose tweet I saw with this particular story on it. Ari, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Jody. I know it's not as juicy as the Harvey Weinstein verdict coming tomorrow. And by the way, that's the greatest closing, I think, in any history a defense lawyer's done. But uh, this one is more important, and nobody seems to really be talking about it. And that's almost exactly verbatim what your tweet said, and I thought, you know what, let's put that on the show today, because if it's getting lost in a busy busy news cycle, but wow, this is a huge statement by this U.S. senator. 
It is. And, you know, a lot of people, it's sort of like the train blockade case. A lot of people don't know what's at its core. And, it, you know, it sounds, because you're talking about YY and 5G, most people roll their eyes and go, I don't get it. What this really is, is, again, another example of how China, to use a certain term from President Orange to the South, sort of rips Canada. And this technology, at its simplest core, and just so you know, I'm not just telling you this, the U.S. just put out a superseding indictment what that means in English is charging YY on a racketeering, RICO, right. not organized crime, Goodfellas way, and gone after, again, the lady who happens to be living in her $12 million house in your city. Meng Wanzhou. And basically, that's right. And what they've alleged, and it's as clear as day, so this is why it's more interesting than it seems, is all YY's done to become a billion-dollar company is not only steal technology and secrets from American and other countries. They've paid their employees to do it. They've rewarded their employees doing it formally. In other words, made employees who can steal this stuff from Canadians and Americans rich, have lied to the government about it over and over, and have violated U.S. sanctions. And you think about it, TELUS, which, no offense if you're still being sponsored by TELUS, TELUS has been very open in saying, well, look, we use YY technology. We'd like to continue to use it. Now, why is that relevant to the story? And then I'll pause here. When TELUS is asked, why do you want to continue using YY? Their answer is because they're cheaper than the American competition. And what are they charged with doing YY that makes them cheaper? Stealing so that their R&D costs, different than all of the people listening to you right now, Jody, entrepreneurs, workers, employees, all YY has done on these allegations is steal this stuff to make their products cheaper. Right, R&D, research and development, done by others and then called and branded their own. Other countries building 5G networks without Huawei uh, for these very reasons, Australia, Japan, Taiwan. We've been talking about the Five Eyes on this subject for quite some time, and yet we still tend to be, as a country, stepping foot after foot towards a 5G network built by Huawei. Well, this ties into sort of Canada's feckless, and I'm being polite by using that term, Canada's feckless approach to the Chinese government. We see it with the two Michaels that are stuck in jail while the lady in your city is living in a $12 million house. You can't come up with a better metaphor than what Canada is and what China is than those two people rotting in jail while Trudeau flies home from Africa with the Raptors president versus that lady living in a $12 million house. That is China continually. And this is not me saying it. This is any expert when it comes to IP, intellectual property. This is why Samsung products are so cheap. Ask Apple about the amount of thievery going on, why Samsung appliances are so cheap. This is a very serious problem. And to people who don't think this matters, when you look at how precarious Canadian jobs are, how many people get laid off in the manufacturing sector, including in the States, and then you have the rise of Trump, this is the very thing that people who are so busy tweeting about some viral animal video or some cat video, this is what you're missing. But this comes back to bite you because this is the technology that is being used by the Chinese government to get a backdoor. Literally, that's what it is, a backdoor to all of these other countries. And Canada is the one country, because if it says anything, you know, we tend to overuse the word racism. Everything's racist. The coronavirus, if you talk about it, it's racist. 
this is a very significant problem for Canadian and U.S. citizens in the U.S. to its credit. And that's the senator that you saw today talking about it said, look, this is not a friendly competition. This is not capitalism. This is outright thievery. And we're going to call it what it is. And Boris Johnson, uh, was it just recently decided right. to give Huawei a limited role in its 5G networks, much to the chagrin of many in the intelligence community? That's right. And Boris Johnson, when he was asked about it, said sort of the way some have said, well, we're not going to give them uh, an ability to put in their 5G systems in a way that allow the kind of backdoor systems and ways. But you're talking about, again, Canada, very linked to British kind of thinking, countries that are very, very afraid of offending. We see that again with the rail blockade story. We see it with almost every hot-button issue, the coronavirus, yeah. where, feel, where feelings somehow trump facts. And if you look at the history of YY, and I have, and you read these indictments about what they're being charged with. Now, that being said, nothing's been proven. I'm a defense lawyer. I get that. Fair. But when you, when you look at the indictments of just how brazen this is, this isn't behind the scenes, Jody. This isn't some secret cabal. This is all sorts of documents and emails being sent from YY, from Meng Wazhou's father, who's the billionaire who started it, and including her lying to authorities about dealing with Iran. These are all emails that are being sent saying, you steal this for us, you will be very handsomely rewarded and promoted. That should offend every Canadian right now who simply goes to work trying to make an honest day's pay when you have a company that wants to take your job. This isn't just a talking point. Not only wants to take your job, but in many ways has taken your job. We're with Ari Goldkind, who's a criminal lawyer, who tweeted this story about how the U.S. is basically laying it down uh, and wants to legislate that they will not share intelligence with countries who decide to use Huawei technology on their 5G networks as Canada is moving ever closer to completing with that. And what does CSIS say about this? Like internally in Canada? Like, are we not at all concerned? Are we just like, nope, it's good? No, no. If you go inside baseball here, you go into CSIS, you go into the authorities, you go into people who understand coding and programming, Mm -hmm. you are talking about a country that is an adversary. Yes, as much as there are many millions and millions of Chinese people in Canada and your city and my city, and that's a very different discussion than the Chinese government itself. These are all meant to be backdoors. This is meant to be intellectual property. This is a hostile government. So as much as you'll see our prime minister, fearless leader, going around and shaking hands with murderers and dictators and smiling and bowing down, there are very real technological reasons China's doing this. And, by the way, China is not to be faulted for this. China is not to be put down for this. This is China for decades being much, much, much smarter than anybody here, which is why you see the complete demise, one of the reasons of manufacturing in our country and in the United States and the rise of China as a global player. This doesn't happen by accident. The question is, are we content and is our government content to do business with cheaters? And the answer seems to be, at least from Canada, yes, whereas the U.S. says, not anymore. Well, I like the fact that you do point out with CSIS and that Canada's military is uh, privately urging the federal government to ban Huawei from 5G. Like, how close are we to having a, a tipping point where we can no longer backtrack on this? I don't know that we are in this country because, as you see, even from the rail blockades today, you again, you have people afraid to take leadership on this. You have people afraid to say 
you know, these are people that should be put down on their behinds and that the rule of law has to matter. You'll see no politician wanting to own these because they'll find a constituency, and this is real, this is at the actual grassroots level, they don't want to offend potential voters. And remember, this is the government, Jody, the Liberal government, that has a minister of the middle class. Oh, yes, I know we could go down that rabbit hole, Ari, but I've got to tell you, like, is this really about votes or is this about a massive trading partner for Canada in China? I I think this has to do with both, because at the end of the day, if politicians knew this wouldn't cost them a vote, i.e. their seat or being called the R-word or other blowback, you would see politicians adopting the U.S. policy because the U.S. policy, again, and I'll be quick here, if you actually read the superseding indictment, it's not legalese, it's not hard to understand, racketeering, all this good fellas, Irishman stuff, you see a complete scheme, and that's what it is here, let's be honest, it's a complete scheme to defect, to essentially deflect attention away from what they're doing and to steal property and steal talent and steal research and development that has been done honestly by North American and other companies. And just on a basic point, that shouldn't be okay with anybody, even if you're a politician. Well, Ari, thank you very much for the enlightening discussion. Certainly food for thought for us. I appreciate you taking some time out for us on this Monday Family Day. Anytime, Jody. Pleasure to be on with you. That's Ari Goldkind, criminal lawyer and a great follow on Twitter. I've got so many people today on the program who you absolutely need to find on social media. And just have a look at the feeds. Keith Baldry, Ari Goldkind, Ian Young. Uh, fascinating perspectives there.